Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Well, transportation in the Bay Area is a mess. The traffic is bad. Transit agencies are in tough straits as ridership has fallen off. We don't really know if, in the long term, the classic commute to downtown model will survive. And if it doesn't, what then? The pandemic cracked open our local ways of circulating here in the Bay Area, and we have just never gone back to quote-unquote normal. Worse, we know that in the long term, we need more collective solutions to transportation than each of us getting in a huge machine and driving by ourselves. So today, we talk about the conundrum we find ourselves in now and how we might get out. That's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I am absolutely and entirely allergic to driving to work here at the station. In fact, I have never done it. My standard commute is that I bike to BART and then cross under the bay in those amazing tunnels and get off at 16th Street before walking across the mission. So I've had an up-close view of the struggles our transit system's going through. Until just the last few weeks, I'd hardly ever seen a full BART train in the last two years of commuting. The ridership reports that BART releases tell pretty much the same story. They're not even projecting getting back to 50% of pre-pandemic ridership through fiscal year 2024. Meanwhile, as you probably can tell, traffic is back, and it's back in a big way. Whatever the work-from-home boom did to reduce car volumes on the major arteries for a while has dissipated, and we're back to gridlock. So, here we are. The new normal is a lot like the old normal, but also somehow worse. And that's before our transit agencies run out of money. Here to restore my faith in humanity and our beleaguered and beloved, by me at least, transportation systems, we're joined first by KQED's Dan Brecky. Welcome, Dan. Hey, Alexis. And we're also joined by Janice Lee, president of BART's Board of Directors. Welcome. Good morning. Um, Dan, so we talked a teeny bit about BART and ridership there. Um... We haven't fully bounced back. Have we ever gotten some momentum? <laughs> like, what's what's been happening here? Well, you know, you and I talked about this a little bit before we went on the air. And um, last year, uh, fall of 2022, it looked like a little bit of a spark had been lit. Yeah. And uh, riders were coming back. And then something uh, reared its perhaps ugly head that we really haven't seen too much before the pandemic. And that was there's a real strong seasonal component now to BART ridership. And there was a deep dip over the winter. And I think it was driven 
uh, largely by weather. Yeah. Um, I mean, that affects things in two ways. Um, you know, people like you riding your bike are going to get wet and may not be so inclined if they can uh, uh, work from home. And then uh, also it kind of throws BART's schedule off a little bit because uh, they have to run trains a bit slower. Mm. So what's happened this year is that ridership started to build back early in the year. Uh, Back in April, I think their overall ridership number hit 40%. for the first time of their uh, pre-pandemic ridership. And it's kind of struggled along since then. We're at 43% this month. And weekday ridership, which is really where the money is, Mm. as well as the riders, is uh, sort of been really inching up. I mean, we're at 40% and have been. And it's just, it's, I mean, there is definite progress, but it is really going slowly. You know, Janice, I almost feel, because now a crowded BART train gets me excited... Um, you know, I kind of feel a little bit like, uh, you know, in Peanuts where there'd be the football and I'd get on a crowded bar train and I'd be like, I'm going to go look at the ridership reports. I bet things are up. And then as you know, Dan was saying, things would be maybe a little up, kind of flat. Um, from your perspective, like, you know, inside the organization, do you see like there, there is no projection for, for takeoff, right? Exponential growth or return. Um, so what are you trying to do just to kind of continue inching things along. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first, thank you, Alexis, for being a regular BART rider. I uh, always love hearing from folks who are taking BART regularly. And, and you're seeing what you know we're seeing on the trains. Um, it, it's Our projections are more plateauing, although we have seen some of the ridership incentives and benefits that you know BART has put in place over the last few months. We have seen a slow uptick um, earlier this year, we are more around the 40% high 30s of pre-pandemic ridership, and now we're pretty solidly in the mid-40s, 43 44%. Um, and I think, you know, ultimately, our uh, ridership um, trends have almost directly matched uh, the return to office rate in San Francisco, which mm-hmm. remains... Um, pretty stable, pretty steady, uh, and, and it's not seeing uh, big increases like mm-hmm. you see in other cities. Do you imagine, though, that given that traffic is returning and given that the BART trains do feel more full and things feel more normal, do you kind of in your heart of hearts hope that there is some tipping point where suddenly things start to move in a different direction, like not just inching up, but actually going back to like 60 or 70 percent of pre-pandemic numbers? I- Of course. I am a big believer in public transit. I still believe that public transit is the best way to get around. I think it's critical for economic recovery. It's critical for climate change. Um, So I I absolutely believe that. And I think we are making some pretty major changes at BART to really invite ridership back. For example, right now, you're never going to see those old trains again in regular service. We are now, as of uh, September this year, running 100% fleet of future new trains. And so, you know, as folks are coming back to bar or checking out again after perhaps a couple of years of not riding it, uh, we really are hoping they're coming back to a very different experience. I don't miss the cloth seats. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, Dan, um, you know, BART kind of distills and concentrates the problems that transit systems are having more broadly here in the Bay Area because it was very dependent on commuters into downtown. But give us the kind of broader landscape that BART's a part of. Has ridership come back for anybody in a in a full-on way? 
Not in a full-on way. I mean, interestingly, um, I think that the agency that is uh, sort of head and shoulders percentage-wise of its uh, pre-pandemic levels is SamTrans, uh, San Mateo County Transit. They're at about 86%. It's a bus agency, and I think there's, uh, there's sort of a story there that people seem to be going back to bus systems more readily than to rail systems. Um, that's reflected in, uh, in Los Angeles, too, for instance. Um, where I, I think bus ridership is up to uh, a bit more than 80% of, of what it was before the pandemic. Um, there, there is some good news for, uh, for some of these agencies. Muni just had its uh, best month in September since um, the recent unpleasantness began. Um, AC Transit, the same. Uh, VTA and um, uh, some of the other agencies, uh, you know, the ferry agency, uh, WIDA, uh, San Francisco Bay Ferry, mm-hmm. has had consistently strong numbers. So there is, you know, things are rising slowly. But I think uh, what Janice said about the uh, the work patterns that we have now uh, really does, I mean, we're, we're living in a different world and riding in a different world. Yeah. We're talking about traffic, public transit trends, and what it will take to get commutes in the Bay Area smoothed out. Joined by Dan Brecky, an editor and reporter with KQED. Actually, has a new blog all about these uh, issues. Uh, what's Stay it tuned. It's in transit. In transit. We also have Janice Lee, president of BART's Board of Directors. And we're going to add in a voice and a name that you know from 36 years uh, here at KQED, Joe McConnell. Uh, not doing traffic updates, doing, you know, kind of meta traffic updates with us this morning. Welcome, Joe. Hi, Alexis. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So, you know, there's the overall numbers on traffic, right? But there's also kind of the feel and the flow of traffic. From your perspective, is the traffic back? Yeah, that is my, by the way, my my perspective is feel and flow. I don't have any data. I just, you know, have spent my career watching cars go by. And I I have been a commuter myself, and I've been a BART rider myself, so I know kind of both of those angles. But the assumption that traffic is fully back, I think, is not correct, Mm -hmm. not not completely. Yeah. Um, It used to be that we'd see big traffic jams developing uh, as early as like 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and now it takes longer for the intense period to really wrap up. There, there, There is still... There are still hours mm-hmm. of really bad traffic in the morning and in the afternoon, but they don't last quite as long as they used to. Uh, it takes until sometimes 6.30 or 7 o'clock before it really peaks. And then by, say, 8.30, it's over. Mm-hmm. And it used to go until 10, 10.30. Yeah. So we can see it easing back. And uh, I talked to our afternoon traffic reporter, uh, Julie Deppish, who confirms it in the afternoon. Uh, it tends to end around 6 o'clock. The, the really bad, intense uh, traffic jams tend, tend to end then, and it used to go till seven or eight. Yeah. So, so you know, people are also crashing a lot more. See that a lot, which <laughs> huh. I don't know where that fits in, but uh, but not just crashing, but getting into worse Rex. collisions. Well, and people were really saying more right, that that during the pandemic there was an increase in kind of dangerous driving incidents of of all kinds, right? Oh, yeah. Well, of course, when the pandemic was in full speed, we had people speeding like yeah. crazy because they could. And, and that in, intensified the seriousness of the crashes. And maybe they're used to doing that, and but they don't, there's more people out there. So they're 
getting into more trouble. Yeah. Dan uh, Brecky, do you, if we, you know, see the peaks essentially still being high, maybe even higher than they were before, but they're, they're spikier, do we think that's just basically because, you know, these work patterns are different, it's kind of consistent at least with a shorter day in the office? You know, it's a little hard to tell. Uh, you know, one thing that's been in the back of my mind watching this recovery, uh, such as it's been over the last few years, is that one thing that we're finding out is that people didn't love the way they were living before. And, um, you know, and for a lot of people, that meant uh, that commute to office. And um, I think in terms of, you know, who's driving and who's not, it's also a little hard to tell. But the the truth is the bay area as uh, good as our transit systems can be um has always had a very large proportion of people who drive solo and i think what joe is saying is is absolutely correct i mean both um from you know the impressionistic you know listening to the reports the the peak messy commute uh just doesn't last as long however you know, when you eyeball some of the stuff that's going on out there, I mean, I just drove across uh, Altamont Pass during the evening rush hour yesterday. Luckily, I was going the reverse commute. Yeah, I was about to say, just a glutton for punishment, Dan. No, Anything for the job. No, yeah? no. I, yeah, exactly. I was doing research. But the, um, the, the thing is, when you see what happens on our highways, it's breathtaking yeah. that, uh, you know, the, the, just the intensity of the commute and how what people are willing to endure, uh, even when they have pretty decent transit options available. Yeah. We're talking traffic, public transit, joined by Dan Brecky, editor and reporter here at KQED. Joe McConnell, who you know, former KQED traffic reporter, just retired this month after 36 years. Amazing. We're also joined by Janice Lee, president of BART's board of directors. We'd love to hear from you. How has your commute changed since the pandemic started? And what would it take to get you back onto public transit? When we get back from the break, we're going to talk more broadly about the transit situation and why we need it in the city. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrid. Well, we're talking about traffic, public transit, the commute around here in the Bay Area. Joined by Janice Lee, president of BART's Board of Directors, Joe McConnell, 
you know as former KQED traffic reporter and Dan Brecky, editor and reporter at KQED covering transportation issues. Want to add a couple more voices into our conversation, broaden things out. Joined by Rebecca Long, Director of Legislative and Public Affairs at the Municipal Transportation Commission. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much. Great to be here. And we're joined by Daniel Rodriguez, who's Director of the Institute for Transportation Studies at UC Berkeley. Welcome, Daniel. Great to be here, Alexis. Thank you. So, Daniel, we've been talking about a little bit um, about factors that have kind of pushed transit riders to switch to driving or or pulled them to driving. From your perspective, what are the sort of crucial things um, that have made driving continue to seem more attractive uh, than than getting back on transit? Yes, I, I think we are swimming against the current here, unfortunately. We've created a landscape in which the majority of jobs and opportunities are very accessible by the automobile, Mm -hmm. and transit access and competitiveness is not quite there yet. So what does a middle-income family that can barely afford to live downtown do? They think about suburbanizing, because this is tied to the housing crisis, and they think about buying an automobile, which will buy Mm. all this accessibility to destinations. It's unfortunate, but it's a reality. This is what LA Metro has been experiencing over the past 10, 15 years, the suburbanization of the middle-income rider. So do you think that that's at least part of what happened, is that the commute patterns aren't just about our work lives, but they're also about people's kind of changing home lives, that we're seeing a, a spatial drift uh, eastward, which makes it, or, you know, or southward or whatever, suburbanward, which then makes it uh, even more appealing to drive than before. Absolutely. If you look at the percentage of trips that we make that are to work, it's about a third, 28, 30, 32 percent, depending on where you are, which means that we have this other 60 percent of trips that we want to serve. And we now realize that we want to take those trips in ways that are much more comfortable, much more appealing. We want to walk there. We might want to bike there. And if we can work from home, as some people can right now, We will be able to do that. And I think that's at the crux of the changes that we're seeing here for BART and for many transit agencies in the state. Yeah. I mean, Janice, if the change is really a permanent step change, then like how big do the changes to BART need to become? That's a really good question. I think um, while we've seen, uh, we just heard from Dan Brecky about the changes uh, and the return to bus transit, it's a little bit harder for BART to pick up our rails and, you know, make our system a little bit more flexible. However, um, with our recent service change in September, we realized more people were wanting to see better consistent service on weekends and weeknights. And we found a cost neutral way to be able to make sure that whenever you're taking BART, whatever time of day, you know, whatever service is running, you'll never wait more than 20 minutes. That's very different than on weekends where you're waiting over 30 minutes. So we're able to make some of these, I would say, smaller scale changes in some way to our service to try to be more flexible. But it, it's hard when you're running what we call a fixed uh, rail system, a fixed point system, um, where we, we can't be that flexible with people's schedules in the same way. If you start going down the list of like more radical changes, like what's what's down there? What's what's further down the list of things you don't want to do, I assume? Um, well, we certainly don't want to have to reduce service in any way. And so uh, right now at, at BART, we are all in on trying to maintain service and wherever possible, like I just mentioned, actually increase service to better serve this non-commuting, um, non-peak ridership that we're seeing um, wanting and needing to take transit to get around. Yeah. Rebecca Long uh, with the uh, MTC you all have a 
remit to kind of study and look at what might get people riding transit, right? Um, what are your what's your take on how we can more effectively swim upstream to you know reference uh, Daniel's idea? Yeah, thank you. You know, we've been looking at this obviously since the pandemic to a large extent. We uh, pulled together transit leaders, uh, some of our elected officials on the commission, business community advocates, and um, held a a blue ribbon task force over about a year uh, beginning in the pandemic and and really did a lot of research as well. What do Bay Area residents and voters, you know, care about most when it comes to transit? And, you know, some of the issues that I think have come up already in this conversation around public safety and perceptions of public safety are really front Mm -hmm. and foremost when you ask people you know, did you ride transit before? Why aren't you riding it now? Or, or just generally, what is preventing you from riding transit? Um, safety and cleanliness are at the top of the list. And I think it is important to distinguish between what is actually the case on the system and what people perceive to be the case. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm, I myself, I'm also a regular BART rider. And I think as the system has um, recovered its ridership to, to, you know, a large extent from the rider's experience, obviously the, the statistics demonstrate that it has a very long way to go, but it is getting a lot more crowded. It, it feels quite safe, I yeah. would say. Um, and so I think part of it is getting th- that word out there. Um, but, you know, what are some of the other things riders want to see? They they just want a system that's more reliable, more connected, right? We, some of your listeners may not be aware, we have about two dozen transit agencies in the Bay Area. Um, is that enough, though? <laughs> <laughs> One for each person. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. That's that's what people want, right? That is kind of what automobility is, is, is one system for each person. But we, we need a more con- connected system, right? A lot of um, people who don't have a choice, they take the bus to get to BART or to get to um, Caltrain, mm-hmm. what have you. Um, and they're transferring between systems. And, and today, you know, you generally are penalized for doing that. If your trip requires you to take that transfer, mm-hmm. you have to pay fare twice. Maybe there's a modest discount, but it, it's not as affordable and as seamless as it should be. Um, so that's what, one of the yeah. other priorities that we're working on is is more integrated fares so that for the rider, it really feels more like one system. Um, and also more just comprehensible, more visible. Um, when you think about some of the success of Uber and Lyft, you know, everything is so straightforward and simple. You can see exactly when your ride's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's just very straightforward. I think for people who don't ride transit regularly, the fact that you are confronted with so many different logos, that you don't know where to look for the schedule, those types of things are barriers that we really want to remove. And so um, MTC is working on a number of fronts to address those yeah. issues. Let's go back to, I think, what what you started with, which is the core kind of public safety issues that seem to be driving um, at least some people's behavior. Let's go to uh, Julian in Point Richmond. Welcome to the show. Oh, hi there. Um, yeah, <clears throat> I'm, I'm a big fan of BART, uh, definitely. And, um, you know, my, my wife uh, takes it uh, regularly, but, um, but I, I think... Uh, I think that is the biggest thing lately um, is the safety kind of thing. Um, we were going to see uh, actually a friend of mine that, that also rides BART, and he's a, he's a saxophonist, um, Aaron Bennett. And uh, he, um, you know, sort of before we were going to go see him at SF Jazz, um, he, got, he got hit over the head um, at mm. the BART by some sort of guy that jumped over the gates. And I think, like, you know, you talk about, like, taking the ferry, um, they check everybody, you know, there's, and I know it's harder to do with BART, um, but it just seems like, you know, I've seen a lot of BART police that, 
watch these guys jump over the gates and don't do anything. And um, it's it's so I, I told my wife, I just don't think it's safe at the moment for mm-hmm. you to, you know, to, to take it just because um, he got he had to get stitches. He was rushed to the emergency room like it was a real mess. And uh, luckily, he's not dead, you know. Uh, and so it's just it's the safety thing. I know when more numbers come back, it starts to get better but it this was during commute time he was coming back at the end of the day just yeah. regular commute and uh so that that i just think yeah julian things for yeah. yeah that makes a ton of sense to me and i think a, lo- a lot of folks you know have different versions of this in their head whether it's you know neil wilson or other people who you know were high profile um you know public safety incidents like in in the bart system um janice you know this one is coming to you um, I mean, how do you balance this? How do you balance, you know, not running down a bunch of 12-year-olds who skip the, the fair gate um, with the public safety and the suggested solution that Julian has there, which is to, you know, prevent people who haven't bought a ticket from getting into the station? Yeah. Um, well, Julian, thank you for your question. I'm really sorry to hear about your friend Aaron. Um, I hope he's recovering well. Um, I I hear you on this, uh, which is why we've been partnering with MTC, with um, everyone we possibly can get money from to replace our fair gates. Um, And so we approved uh, that new project earlier this year. And the first of the brand new fair gates are coming into West Oakland by the end of this year. And that's going to spark um, and spur a full on fair gate replacement project throughout all 50 stations to be done in the next two-ish years. Wow. And what, yeah, go ahead, Dan. You know, and I was also going to say one of the things that's been raised uh, several times here is that the trains look or are more crowded now. There's actually a pretty clear explanation for that. The trains are shorter. And uh, BART did this deliberately in part to increase the density of, uh, you know, passenger loads and uh, make the trains easier to police and also add to the level of safety. The the theory, and I know it's your folk theory, My folk theory. <laughs> uh, Alexis, is that, uh, you know, more people around means less chance of yeah. uh, antisocial behavior. Yeah. I just think I have only ever seen someone smoke meth on a train that was basically empty. You know what I mean? If it's, there's a lot of people on the train, that's not happening. Sorry. Not, not me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, when you're biking, you use the term safety in numbers. When you're the only person biking on the street, it doesn't feel super safe. If you're in a whole, you know, peloton of folks, it feels a little safer. But actually, Dan, thank you for bringing that up. Um, that, that plan to shorten our trains and increase the density allows us to run all of our new trains. But it actually came from our Not One More Girl initiative, which was a uh, young women and uh, non-binary uh, um, advocacy um Sorry, it was led by young women and mm-hmm. folks who are non-binary to figure out ways that we can really increase safety on our trains mm-hmm. through community-driven solutions, for, through better policies, um, and shortening trains and increasing density was one of those changes. Yeah. Um, Joe McConnell, um, want to, uh, first some compliments. Trish writes, so good to hear that amazing, calm, rich voice of Joe McConnell. Once again, we miss you, Joe. And Mike writes, thanks for making traffic reports sound a little less stressful. I don't know what it is about your voice, but thank you. Um, so Joe, in that vein, do you have uh, hope that we may not just have increasing traffic problems, but might actually solve some of these things? Oh, I hope not for, for my business's sake, you know, 
uh, the traffic business thrives on it. No, I mean, uh, I'm I'm being funny. I, I yeah. certainly hope so. I but you know, I've been looking at this just get worse and worse yeah. with ebbs and flows over decades. And and it, no, I mean, the population increases and you can't keep up with the road construction and. Uh, you know, and now we're trying to get people back on trains. By the way, if you thought of an ad campaign, maybe that would help. <laughs> uh, and just one thing, I'm not doing a, a, any traffic reports anymore, but I can't help mentioning that there's a singular major crash on the Nimitz right now, North 880 <laughs> and 98. You can take are, uh, Joe McConnell off of the traffic report, but you can't I mean, take the traffic report out of Joe McConnell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just have to say I, it. No, I appreciate help. it. I so appreciate it. Um, Joe McConnell, thank you so much for joining us, and thanks for for 36 years here at the station. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I, uh, you know, Daniel, I want to come back to you. Um, Steve writes to say, before the pandemic, I was commuting four plus hours per day by bike, BART, and bus. Now I have a 10-minute drive or 20-minute bike ride. I'd like to see better planning to locate jobs closer to homes and de-emphasized driving options. Problem is, like, we do shows on housing as well. <laughs> and... Building homes near the jobs such as they exist right now um, also is difficult. It's difficult as stuff we're talking about here. Um, do you like what are the solutions that other places maybe um, have have found for this? Yeah, I think that uh, it's important to be able to integrate the planning of transit with the planning for urban development, so that we have the concentration of jobs and residences along the corridors. And we have a mix of destinations and of types of residents so that we don't fall into this risk of relying exclusively on a single type of rider because then we might have these unexpected events that lead to low ridership. I do think that we are on the verge of having to reimagine and reinvent transit. And this is the strategic opportunity that I think nationwide, worldwide, we are facing. With automation, with electrification, we have competition that is coming into the transit world. And we need to double down on those key corridors where we have the density, where we have the jobs, where we can bring the density, where we can bring the jobs in order to be able to compete effectively with these other options. I think it's possible. It just needs to, it requires uh, broader thinking and a strategic pivot. And we're not quite there yet. Rebecca Long, you want to respond to that? Yeah, thank you. One of the things that is particularly challenging about this nexus between uh, transportation and land use, which is really what we're talking about, is who has responsibility for each, right? Where's, where does the authority lie? And when it comes to... 108 cities and 22 transit agencies, yeah, right? Pretty so much, <laughs> pretty much. And so that that distinction between cities and counties, municipalities, and transit agencies is really important. And, and in California... Uh, cities and counties are the ones that determine what type of density they're going to have in their city, how much uh, of the land in their city is going to be zoned for residential, how much for businesses. And then within the residential category, how much is multifamily, which is apartment buildings versus single family homes. And so that really drives behavior, right? Where you live, how close you are to transit, um, is really going to affect how much uh, transit is used. And so one of the things MTC has been doing for a long time, but actually tomorrow we're taking a, a very important action to adopt our transit-oriented communities policy, um, is using the funds that come to MTC as, as the regional transportation planning agency, both federal, primarily federal funds, um, that we end up distributing to local governments and saying, your the extent to which you are eligible to receive these funds and how much you will receive will depend on you 
zoning your your city or your county uh, in accordance with how close it is to transit. So in other words, if you have some land that's near BART station, near Caltrain station, near a future BART station, for example, with, with San Jose, uh, bringing BART all the way directly downtown, we are telling those cities that you have to meet these minimum densities in order to receive that future federal funding because we know that having those additional people there, having that additional workforce close to transit will drive future yeah. ridership. Rebecca, I think one of the questions I have, though, is what if the whole model of the downtown commute situation, you know, is just kind of not working anymore? Does that same kind of planning still work if we don't have the transit system to get people where they actually want to go, even if they're living near a transit station? You know, we don't believe that um, downtowns are are dead in our region or or really, you know, nationwide. I think that people naturally want to associate uh, close to one another and, and whether or not people are necessarily commuting for their job just by virtue of having them live near transit, they're going to be more likely to, you know, hop on transit to go to a show to... Um, you know, visit friends. So there's a there's a lot of factors that drive why is that trip taken? As Daniel mentioned earlier, commuting is not the even the primary um, reason people travel. So you know, I think even if re- work from home stays um, very prevalent, we still think that getting the land use right near transit is going to ultimately uh, bring ridership back. Yeah. Um, let's get to a couple comments here before we uh, come into the break here. JP writes, as a commuter by BART for over 20 years, I've seen a wide range of ridership. From attempts to increase ridership to packed, overfilled trains pre-pandemic to the pandemic drop-off to the slow return now, messaging from BART always seems to be the same. Financial distress, whether ridership is low or high, and always a request for more funding. I'm skeptical about if there's a scenario under which BART can be supported by ridership. My understanding, um, Jan, just to respond to that, was that BART actually had the largest fair gate recovery or whatever the actual fair, term of fair art box is. recovery that's rate. what it is it's, that's what it is of all of the the transit systems right that's right about uh, two-thirds of our fares uh pre-pandemic was actually funding the actual day-to-day transit operations which is incredibly high yeah. you can compare that to say san francisco muni which is uh in the teens you know somewhere between 10 to 15 percent might yeah. even be lower today that's interesting we're talking about traffic and public transit joined by janice lee president of the bart board of directors kqed's dan brecky MTC's Rebecca Long and the director of the Institute for Transportation Studies at UC Berkeley, Daniel Rodriguez. Earlier, we were joined by Joe McConnell, of course. Stay tuned for more. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about traffic, public transit, commuting here in the Bay Area in this very slow recovery from the pandemic. Joined by Daniel Rodriguez, uh, director of the De- Institute for Transportation Studies at UC Berkeley. Rebecca Long, who's director of legislative and public affairs with the Municipal Transportation Commission. Joe McConnell, uh, former KQED traffic reporter, joined us earlier. We're still joined by Dan Brecky, editor and reporter with KQED and Janice Lee, president of BART's board of directors. Um, I do want to bring in uh, Steve in San Francisco with a bit of a, of a different question. Welcome, Steve. Hi, how are you doing today? Hey, good, good. Thanks so for calling. So my take on... Yeah, my take on this traffic is also rideshare. You know, you have now Uber, Lyft, Zipcar, get in and go. Everybody now have their own private car, which they didn't have a long time ago. So now... You got people who want a job, so they go get a car, which they never have gotten before, and boom, now they're on the road. Hmm. So now hmm. they're all around the Bay Area. So that's, and, and, never, and like you said, BART, ride shares down, Muni, ride shares down, because nobody wants to deal with that anymore. Why deal with that? You can have your own private car. Yeah. So that's what I see all the time. People in the backseat of an Uber or Lyft, uh, on the phone, doing their makeup, or doing whatever work they're doing on their way to work. Yeah, you know, Steve. No, so I appreciate it. it. No, this is a, this is a really good point. I, I I actually am really curious about this, right? Because you're actually suggesting, uh, Steve, two two things. One is that people who otherwise might not have had cars now can have a car because they're doing gig work. And so we see, uh, you know, more cars on the road that way. But also the way that I think people were previously thinking rideshare might increase traffic would be taking share away from transit agencies in particular kinds of uh, particular kinds of trips. Daniel Rodriguez, do we, what do we know about the the impact of rideshare both before and after the pandemic? Yeah, I think Steve is absolutely right. I think ride-sharing does contribute to congestion downtown. So we have a couple of studies in San Francisco that are showing that ride-sharing is responsible for a pretty significant share of the traffic flow that we're seeing around. Now, I, I have to say that there's also an alternative view that is also quite interesting, and it's uh, and Lyft has, for example, advocated for transit improvements because they see as part of their line of business that people don't own cars. So this is the long game. And is that if they provide mobility for people once in a while, that maybe they shed their cars and those people will get around by transit also for some of their trips. So there's there's plus and cons to this alternative, but I do think that ride sharing has a significant impact on congestion and maybe competing with transit, certainly in the short term. Yeah. Um, another listener writes in to say, whenever we talk about Bay Area transit, always seems to focus on BART or the commute into San Francisco. Okay, fine. Guilty. I do it, so we do it. Uh, also, however, many people do not communicate to San, do not commute to San Francisco and commute to other cities from other under-resourced counties like Solano, Napa, San Joaquin. Transit options are few and unreliable, and most are directed towards the commutes to San Francisco. What options would be available for those of us living in other counties and not commuting to San Francisco? Rebecca Long? Yeah, great question. So every one of our nine Bay Area counties does have some form of transit. In the more suburban areas, uh, they typically are bus service. So, you know, in Solano County, you've got quite a few um, systems that that serve both the local needs as well as regional needs. Um, You know, you've got the San Francisco Bay Ferry that comes from Vallejo connecting to to San Francisco. But your question was more about those those local trips. And again, there, there is local bus service. 
Um, I would say that connecting it in a more regional way um, to serve, you know, all the, all manner of destinations that people have across the wide Bay Area counties is something that we need to do better. And MTC is actually embarking on a study. We call it Transit 2050 Plus um, to really look at where are those gaps um, in potential transit service routes? Uh, where is the demand? And so we're, we're going to be looking at that over the next year and feeding that into our long range plan. Ultimately, the biggest challenge, though, is in funding, right? Um, Operating transit is very expensive. You need to have drivers. And right now, uh, we actually have a lot of our our smaller bus operators have vacancy rates of around 20 to 30 percent. It's very hard to recruit into the Bay Area. And that gets it, you know, just broader challenges we face around housing affordability, um, and so you have to pay a lot of money for these bus drivers, and that that in turn requires mm. a lot more subsidy, which we're you know having a struggle in the region and, and really nationwide to even have enough funding to um, sustain the transit service that we have today. Never mind um, expand it. Um, I want to talk. Well, let's let's stay on buses. Uh, Barbara in East Oakland, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I think we're missing a big point here. I live in um, near Cala, 580 freeway, and we basically have no bus service. Hmm. The bus service was um, reduced and probably discontinued uh, many, many years ago. I've lived here since uh, 1979. And, um, and so we don't have a bus service. We have to walk for miles. The bus is um, unreliable. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you get the picture. Yeah, what choice do you have but to drive? But, Right. Can I just yeah. can I just say something? An additional thing: we've got a development that's going to be um, a housing development that's going to be finished soon, and that's going to really mess up this area. My suggestion is small, maneuverable vehicles, buses that are people movers <laughs> that come frequently. Yeah. I mean, you laugh, but Disneyland does it. Other countries does it. Emeryville does it with the people mover. Right, right, right. Oakland is so far behind. Yeah. Thank you, Barbara, for that. Um, Dan, oh, sorry about that. Dan Brecky, do you want to address, uh, you know, You know, I, I didn't catch where Barbara lived exactly, near 580, I, I call Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, In the Fruitvale area? Uh, well, look, a couple of things have happened with AC Transit. Um they did cut service uh, in, in many parts of town when the uh, pandemic hit. Um, one of the things that was really severely trimmed back and has not come back uh, except in a sort of a ghost form is uh, Trans Bay trips. I mean, there are some lines running. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, the F from Berkeley is one of their really important lines. And the O uh, from East Oakland leaves from uh, Fruitvale Bart. Those are those are operating, but it's really uh, a skeleton service compared to, you know, if you look across the whole system, compared to what it was before. Um, they, you know, AC Transit is in the midst of a big reevaluation of all of its routes. And, um, you know, one thing Barbara said that I think is really key for a lot of writers and something that people don't see and is very displeasing to to them is frequency. I mean, frequency makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this is what's happening with BART. Cutting the wait time at night and on weekends from 30 to 20 minutes is a huge quality of life improvement for people. If you could get it down to 10 minutes or, you know, whatever the magic number is, people would be even happier. Yeah. 
Um, on the topic of integration, um, Noel over on the Discord wants to know, Janice, this one's coming to you, why are you talking about the very expensive BART extension to downtown San Jose? Um, do you regret having to do that? <laughs> I mean, given given the situation that we're in now, like, how do you see that extension? Yeah, I mean, I still think that it's critical to make that full bay connection. Um, these decisions also were not made in the five years I've been on the BART board. And this was these are major commitments we have to San Jose, to Santa Clara, to really build that transit connection. And, you know, obviously everything is still in projection form, but we know that once we get to downtown San Jose, um, suddenly, you know, that really opens up the transit connections so much um, beyond just the... Uh, Bay Area counties. Yeah, um, Daniel, we, I'm finally going to get something that I, I've been wanting to get to for this whole show, which is we know that in the long term, on like a climate basis, we can't just keep with the status quo or worse. So at what point do you start calling for or wanting more coercive strategies to get people using climate-friendlier options? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great question, and I think that there is a strong sense among some of the technology enthusiasts that electrifying the vehicle fleet is is it, and and I think they're wrong. I think it is one step forward, but there's many many other strategies, including transit, including walking, that are key to decarbonizing how we get around, and uh, electric vehicles still have many of the problems that we see right now with internal combustion engine vehicles. Safety, for example, congestion is still going to be there. It's just that we're not spewing those pollutants out in the air locally. They might be coming from other places depending on how we're generating that power. Mm -hmm. So I do think that we need to um, be strategic about our transportation system and the face of climate change. Um, Rebecca Long, how do you quantify or at least describe the benefits of having multiple transit systems, like the kind of resilience benefits of having multiple transit systems that don't just use, you know, kind of surface roads, right? Because it does seem like that's one of the huge advantages of the Bay Area. We have ferries, we have we have the buses, we have the BART system, we have Cal- we have other ways of, of moving around. So how do we, you know, when we're talking about getting people to use transit or to understand the, the value of transit, how do you kind of try and quantify that resilience? Well, I think just the simple fact that there are alternatives to being on those crowded roads, right? I mean, we are so fortunate that going into San Francisco, um, you do have the option of taking the ferry uh, in in the East Bay and in the North Bay that you and and in Marin, um, that you have rail options that avoid you know the congested roadways. And I, I think it's fascinating to me when you look at the kind of mismatch between how many people take transit on a daily basis in the Bay Area, which is, you know, only about seven, six to 7%. And then those who say transit is incredibly important to the region and we need to keep investing and improving in it. That number is around three quarters of Bay Area residents. So even those who never take transit, which is about 20%, say they never take transit, don't want to take transit, prefer driving. Um, they also understand and, and appreciate that transit exists because it's fewer cars on the road um, that they have to deal with. So I think that resilience and those alternatives are um, are pretty you know self-evident and people appreciate that. Right. You don't hit traffic. You are traffic. So, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, the MTC is also working on a study to look at how increasing pricing models, right, might push people to drive less and maybe adopt other transportation modes. 
Um, can you talk about what the study is and sort of how much it would increase the cost of driving? Absolutely. So this is a study called the Next Generation Freeway Study. Uh, it's still, you know, really in in its uh, infancy. Um, we're doing some uh, webinars with kind of experts over the next few weeks, and then going to be doing more public outreach in the coming months. But the impetus for the study was getting back to your earlier question, really uh, to do with climate change, and that MTC is charged with adopting a long-range plan that includes both um, transportation investments and land use changes that will get us to achieve the state's ambitious greenhouse gas reduction goals. Transportation is the biggest contributor um, of greenhouse gas emissions, and most of that comes from everybody driving. Um, and so we we have to look at ways to reduce driving. And what we found in our last plan is that adding to the cost of driving, basically pricing our freeway study, or excuse me, our, our freeways is is a way to incentivize people to, you know, drive less, uh, take transit, maybe, um, you know, use their bike, just in general, think twice about getting in their car, maybe carpool. And pricing, again, is the way to get there. So what the study is doing is looking at specific segments of the Bay Area's freeway system, really focused on where there are good, good alternatives. So if there isn't some transit either today or that's planned and funded in the near future. We're really not looking at, at that mm. corridor. Um, and then looking to about, you know, equity. Obviously, you know, the Bay Area is a very expensive place to live already. Um, if we start talking about increasing the cost of driving, that's going to make it even even more expensive. Right. Um, and so, you know, potentially there are ways to uh, provide a discount for low income uh, drivers. And, and then there's, you know, people who really don't have a choice, whether it's as a result of their, their job, their, you know, in the construction industry. So, so we really recognize um, some of the burden, but at the same time, the, the vision, not just from a climate perspective, but from a mobility perspective is how do we make our freeway system more reliable? Right. Every all of us need to drive sometimes. And we want to know that, you know, what how much time is this actually going to take and and having a freeway system that functions better um, when you do need to take it will make uh, will likely re require making yeah. it a more expensive choice. Daniel, um, have other places been able to do this in a way that wasn't regressive or that didn't lead to like massive political pushback? Because it seems like what we're talking about here is kind of congestion pricing with uh, with climate, um, you know, impetus. And it seems like those things have really been very difficult to implement precisely because it hits a wide swath of lower income people. Yes, it's politically treacherous, but I think it's worth considering. Certainly, New York City is actively having this discussion in the U.S., but other places, London, for example, Stockholm, uh, have been very successful at this. And the way they were able to implement it and maybe avert the criticism is to invest heavily in public transportation, devote some of the resources collected from this charge to public transportation. In the case of Stockholm, they did it ahead of time mm -hmm. so that people could realize, ha, huh, this, uh, <laughs> right. this is how good transit service mm -hmm. looks like. Yeah. And experiencing that means, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm willing to pay for getting around by my car once in a while because I can take this great bus service that I now have available. Yeah. Have to say, it's not not confidence inspiring. You know, well, actually, you know, and and, and actually, the most uh, uh, you know liberal transit city, transit friendly city in the Bay Area, San Francisco, 
uh, is about to celebrate the 20th birthday of its uh, initiative to study congestion pricing, and it's never got beyond a study. Yeah. And, um, you know, the investment in transit is already here, and uh, there are places in the city that it would make a lot of sense to do it, and it's not happening. What, why do you think that is, Dan, just because it's an unpopular tax? Oh, it's a uh, – let, let's use a, uh, a train metaphor. It's a third rail. Um, no, I mean – and it's really look not to minimize the the difficulty of it. Um, look, when uh, Scott Weiner, Senator Scott Weiner here, wanted to implement a temporary dollar fifty bridge toll to help support transit, there was immediate and justified pushback about what's this going to do to low income drivers. And um, I think this is the same issue with uh, getting congestion pricing in place in San Francisco depends on having a lot of lower-income service workers traveling around, and they can't all get on uh, BART or Muni. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Janice Lee, you have to really try and do something about all this. Uh, <laughs> so, so, yeah, yeah. So what, um, you know, just as we as we head out of the show, what's like, you know, one, two, three on your to-do list for, you know, this, this coming period? Yeah, um, I, I think... All of the 27 transit operators uh, in the Bay Area really working with MTC's leadership need to find ways to work better together that have real tangible impacts to end riders, whether that's, you know, transfer discounts, whether that's having a, you know, better clipper pass uh, that, that's just more easy, more accessible, you know, discounts for low income folks, whatever it is, we've got to work better together. The second is we, we really have to um, work with our local counties, our departments of public health, departments of homelessness to have comprehensive strategies to address uh, houselessness um, and, you know, the increasing affordability is, is pushing even more uh, folks who are unhoused onto transit systems. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is a big, difficult, comprehensive thing that starts with collaboration. And then lastly, it's, you know, for BART, I'm focused on making sure that our service change, that, you know, we... It's running how we want it to run, that we're providing really consistent, reliable transit, you know, no more breakdowns, no more delays yeah. with the new trains. Back to basics. We've been talking about traffic and transit trends, commuting. Been joined by Janice Lee, president of BART's board of directors. Dan Brecky, editor and reporter here at KQED. Rebecca Long, director of legislative and public affairs with the Municipal Transportation Commission. And Daniel Rodriguez, director of the Institute for Transportation Studies at UC Berkeley. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, Earlier, we were joined by Joe McConnell, former KQED traffic reporter. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for the next hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.